Amen. You can have a seat. So thank you, team, for leading us. Appreciate you guys. Um, they will be back later to close out our service, but thank you guys for leading us. So what we've been doing throughout this series of sermons on marriage is that I've been teaching for a little while, and then at the end of the, the sermon had uh, a couple of people come up and have a conversation with me, and we're going to invert that a little bit this morning because the schedule worked out a little bit differently. I asked uh, a longtime friend of mine to come in and join us this morning as a guest speaker. I was going to teach for a little while and then have a more extended conversation uh, with my friend Alan Holovka, and then uh, some of you know I had to make a quick trip out of town this past week to take care of some family issues that was fine, but it sort of cut into my prep time, and I called Alan earlier in the week and said, you're planning to come anyway, how about just taking over? And he's like, I'm in. And I'm like, I love you. That is awesome. Thank you. So I want to take a second and just introduce our guest speaker this morning, and then also kind of lead us into the topic. So uh, I mentioned Alan Holavka is here this morning to lead us into God's Word this morning on this uh, really, really important topic. I've known Alan for many years. We were actually on staff together at uh, Good Shepherd Community Church over on the east side of town uh, way back when I got my start in vocational full-time ministry. Uh, That's the church that I worked at. Alan was already on staff there, and I joined the staff team at that church and was there together for seven years on staff with him. He's just a little bit older than me, not much, but he was more experienced than I was. And so, uh, you know, as a brand new pastor, you're running around going like, how do you learn how to do stuff that they didn't teach you to do in seminary, right? Like, how do you do a memorial service? How do you, you know, walk a family through grief? I mean, all these kinds of things. And um, I remember the very first memorial service I ever got um, to do as, as a, a pastor at the church, uh, I went straight down the hall. I'm sure we arranged it ahead of time, but I don't remember that. I vividly remember walking down the hall from my office to Alan's office and sitting at a table and just saying, dude, how do you do this? Like, talk to me. And he just had all kinds of advice. So I took out a piece of paper. I wrote notes because that's what we did back before we all had smartphones. Uh, Yeah, okay. We're just going to move on from the age comments and jokes, right? But I got these paper files and then he photocopied. That's another thing we all used to do before we just scanned and texted each other. Uh, He photocopied some of his own notes. And you know, I still to this day have all those notes in a file in my office just on the other side of the building, including some with your handwriting on them, Alan, that I've just carried with me forever. They're like a teddy bear, and I just (laughs) snuggle up with them at night. No, in all seriousness, I do have these files, and I've just learned so much from this brother on a variety of people issues and pastoral issues that I really appreciate. And so it was a joy to be able to talk to Alan and have him come in here today, particularly because the subject of marriage has always been a real passion of his throughout his pastoral ministry. And in fact, he's been a member of the Family Life speaker team for many, many years. So if you've ever gone to a Family Life marriage conference, either here in Portland or anywhere else around the country, there's a whole bunch of speakers that really invest a lot into making those conferences happen. And Alan and his wife, Theta, have been part of that team for many, many years. And so when I was calling him and asking him to come in this morning, it kind of felt a little like calling in an airstrike, you know? It's like, just give me the, the, the super skilled person who knows how to do this better than me anyway, and why don't you just hit this target? And he said, yes. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. Would you guys welcome Alan up on the platform with me? Thanks, buddy. So real quick, um, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family for those that don't know you. Yeah, I'll show you a picture of Miss Theta. Theta is not with me this morning. She's at home taking care of six of our 14 grandkids. And uh, in August, Theta and I will be married 50 years. Uh, I set the world record for marrying over my head. 
Uh, so we have, we have three daughters, uh, Joy and her husband, our MAF, Missions Aviation Fellowship staff in, in Uganda. He, he does dangerous things, and that's what he's made for, and they have six children. One of them they've adopted is an African girl, Sanyu. Theta always wanted an African granddaughter. And then we have a, another daughter named Heather. Her husband, Steve, is a commercial electrician, also a Black Hawk helicopter pilot for the Army, five kids. He's been in the Middle East protecting and rescuing special forces. And then we have a 35-year-old daughter, our youngest daughter, who has three children, and she's single. And um, we just kind of like each other. That's awesome. Well, for 50 years, I hope so. She, you married over your, your head, and she went right over your head and took everything with her. So that's well, awesome. That's no kidding. Yeah. I had to work in. It's a mercy ministry. The bold, yeah. Right, okay. We just anyway, whatever. We're friends. At least we were up until a minute ago. Hey, so you've been doing pastoral ministry for years, but I mentioned marriage is a passion. Are yeah. those two things unrelated? Why is this such a passion for you? Yeah. No, it, it is a passion. Uh, I came to Christ in March. March 16, 1971, nine days later, the guy that led me to Christ, his wife led Theta to Christ. He did our wedding. Uh, the way I put it, Matt, uh, I've been in ministry 43-plus years full-time, and uh, I spend most of my time in marriages. And I thought about one day I'm meeting with, you know, I meet with couples who are about to get married, and I, I meet with couples who can't go on. And I, I came up with the reality as I work in the nursery and the morgue of marriages. I see them when they're going, man, let me in. And I see them when they say, I, I, I can't go back, I won't go back, you do what you gotta do to me. And knowing that the Holy Spirit, as Howard Hendricks said one time, he was speaking to crusade staff from Matthew 13, verse 58, where it says, Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. And he said to all the staff, he says, if you stop believing that Jesus can change your life, I need you to step down. He said, I'm not joking. I need you to step down. So I'm just naive enough to get in there when the, the undertaker's come and I said, I think we can have a resurrection. Does God change those marriages? Have you seen yeah. seemingly hopeless marriages? Yeah, change? actually, one of my favorite appointments, this was great. Man, there was a fight. I couldn't afford a front row seat for a fight like this. <laughs> the lady walked out, Brazilian lady, literally, her fingers that far. They didn't pain you enough to sit through what you just sat through. <laughs> they were fighting viciously. Jesus made them new. So God can change lives. You know, we talked about God's power from Ephesians 1 a couple of weeks ago that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. And sometimes that's hard to see when we think it's hopeless. But if we don't give up on God, he can do miracles. Yeah. And so let me, last kind of question for, for me as I want to kind of lead us into the, today's topic. Uh, so we've got our main slide up there with our five topics. The fourth one today being uh, one flesh, sex, sexual intimacy in marriage. Um, this was such an important topic for me to put on, on the docket of, of the topics that we were going to cover in a marriage series for a lot of reasons, but I think I would boil it down to saying, you know, the, the culture we live in is, is so oversexed and yet undersexed at the same time, right? I mean, there's so much sexually explicit imagery everywhere, the sexualization of men's bodies, certainly of women's bodies, and we all get exposed to that in a thousand different ways, and, yeah. and most church-going Christian people are very aware of all of that. That's not new. And at the same time, the culture has, um, from the biblical perspective, a very shallow view of what sex and sexuality is really all about. Yeah. So on one hand, we get too much of it. On the other hand, we get too little of it. But 
at the same time, then sometimes within churches, because we, we sort of know that that's not God's way of handling it, we don't want to associate with that, but then, interestingly, if we never talk about it, you don't necessarily know what is God's positive and beautiful vision yes. for creating us yes. as men and women, as sexual beings. What is his purpose? And for a lot of people, they may be surprised to open up the pages of Scripture and find out the Bible actually talks about that in multiple different places, not even yeah. just one place. Yeah. And so God gives us... The, the tools to understand our own sexuality and how to utilize it well, how yeah. it's a good and beautiful thing, how that works with marriage. Uh, but if we don't talk about it, we can almost end up on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like, we don't know what to do with sexuality. We just assume that sex is bad or wrong, and to be a godly person is to disassociate with that, which is just as destructive in a totally different way. And that's not the church we want to be. We want to follow God's word into topics that are real and find some truth and find some grace and find some life-giving hope in that. Um, as you've talked about the subject of marriage over the years, how has this, this issue of sexuality um, played into that? Why, why should churches talk about this? Oh, man, because the enemy, we see, listen, we are absolutely indoctrinated, are we not, with the enemy's view and... And, and so it's kind of like, well, we should go mute. We, we shouldn't talk about this. It's almost like people say, well, you don't want to bring God in your sexual relationship. That's like saying Henry Ford hates cars. He, he invented it. And we're going to work with this in the next few minutes, and we're going to go to the key passage that Matt has been teaching you over these weeks and just say, oh, goodness, if, if you experience the sexual intimacy that God created you for in the power of the Spirit... The world doesn't have a whisper of the joy that God has created and desires for you to experience so that your heart can be protected from the counterfeit that's ripping you off. That's awesome. Can I pray for us to yes. that end? God, we come before you now as your church. Um, every Sunday, what a joy to come together as a church and address you, to speak to you, to ask you to speak to us to teach us, to change us. And so, God, on this morning, on this topic, uh, which you have a good number of things to say about, far more than we could say in a single sermon, nonetheless, God, we pray, knowing that your Spirit is present here, we pray that you would tune our ears, as it were, to hear what you're saying, to open our eyes, as it were, to see what you are trying to show us. God, for those who need to understand what your positive vision for human sexuality is, I pray, God, that you would give us truth, that you would inform us, that you would give us that, that anchor point to grab onto in a world that seems so chaotic and, and, and swirling all the time. God, for those for whom this is a really tough or uncomfortable or even painful subject because of, of current or even past experiences with sex and sexuality, God, for people who need hope, for people who need healing, we pray that you would bring that this morning. And for every single one of us who needs to experience you leading us to yourself in the gospel of grace and transforming us at every level of our lives to reflect your son, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, we pray, mm -hmm. Holy Spirit, that you would do that work this morning. That you would speak, not only through Alan, that you would speak to each one of our hearts. That you would give us hope, that you would bring healing, that you would bring a much greater transformation of our lives to reflect you. God, for our good and your glory, would you have your way with us this morning as a church? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Right, brother, lead us into God's Thanks, word. Thanks, man.
Well, it truly, truly, truly is a joy to be here. Matt and Amy are very dear friends, multiple years together in ministry. Uh, Bruce and Tammy Wickersheim, uh, Bruce and I have been teaming together the last 18 years. We've had countless sacred, marvelous, meaningful moments. The Armantrouts, love the Armantrouts, teaming with them in family life. That's how we fell in love with them. Um, as you would expect of Bruce, as you get to know him, you're going to love being loved by him. Friday, I get a text from Bruce saying about how he's carefully praying for these moments. And here was my response, so you can catch what my heart is for our experience this morning. I said, thanks, Bruce. I'm hoping the Lord will give new hope and pathways to restore the joy and wonder he intends for a husband and wife to experience in the sacred moments of intimacy that he's created for them to honor, experience, and image him. I'm hoping for a spirit-given balance of authenticity and dignity on this important and delicate topic. You know, I, I've, I've watched all the messages that Matt gave, and goodness gracious, Jim and Kathy and Dana and Julie and Matt and Amy, so vulnerable, weren't they? So vulnerable. We're going to seek to be that vulnerable in this session this morning. And that first week, Matt, here's some of the things you said. You said the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate each year at Easter, is more than just a miracle of the past. It's God's power for significant healing and life change for us right now, impacting our relationships. To take Matt's statement, to use it as a phrase, I'd like to put it this way. And, and let me frame it. Everything we're going to say this morning has to do with where you really live. When you go home and that door closes, that's real life. The animosity, the silence, the joy, the laughter, the distance, the unresolved conflict, the tension, that's real life. Can the resurrected Jesus make a difference in your home? You know the answer. Uh, and you say, yeah, but man, we've been at this for years, and this is this, and this is the way it is. Man, I, I have worked with the most intract intractable situations. Jesus is capable. Now, as we're going to talk about intimacy from God's gifting, from God's word, as, as Matt introduced in that first week, he says, we want to look at marriages from the pages of Scripture. Um, and and a, a clever statement you made that first week, Matt, in talking about this week, he said, we're going to make you delightfully uncomfortable. <laughs> I take no delight in making you uncomfortable. I take less delight in you getting your pocket picked by the enemy and people who know Jesus and open God's word don't speak to where we really live behind those doors. Don't let the enemy continue to own you, particularly in this delicate area because it's a non-topic, isn't it? It's a non-topic. <sighs> Joe Aldridge, former president of Multnomah University, now with the Lord, said the number one evangelistic tool in America today is a successful marriage because it's a living miracle. 
No one in this room can have a perfect marriage, but you can have an honest marriage, you can have a vulnerable marriage. People can tell, particularly ladies, you know spirit, don't you? You know spirit. You'll never find a perfect couple, but you can find a spirit-empowered, spirit-living-through, quickly, quick-to-confess, quick-to-forgive marriage. Sexual intimacy is God's idea. You go, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to say a couple things, not to try to make you uncomfortable, although it might. That's not my motive. My motive, and, and you know, this isn't a family life conference, but may I kind of say, let's just call what's going on this morning just for you. Whether you're a single man or a single woman and trying to understand what does God say about this, or whether you're a married couple who's doing well, doing poorly, doing mediumly, let this just be a message that's just for you. So when I say sex is God's idea, sexual intimacy is God's idea, I don't think in a room like this I'll get any pushback, but I'm not sure I'll get a lot of buy-in. Here's what I mean. He's the author, he's the creator of this powerful and complex gift. You know, Matt has chosen Ephesians chapter 5 as the central passage, verses 21 uh, through 33. I'm going to quote from verse 31. You know this passage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. As Matt taught the first week, this is mega mysterion. Huge mystery. This is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. What? What does that mean? What that means is the level of knowing that you have with your spouse in a sexually intimate moment is strictly an invitation. It's an hors d'oeuvre. The Lord is saying, man, you think that's good? That's nothing. Try being one with me. Sexual intimacy is not an isolated gift. It's not an isolated gift. It's not like, well, God created Adam and Eve and be fruitful and multiply and, oh, here's some perks. You'll enjoy this. No. What was God doing? Well, what's interesting is there are uh, 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Chapter 2 is where he says, man and a wife shall become one flesh. 1,113 chapters later, he explains what he means. He says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Let, let me further illustrate this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, rough chapter. Latter part of the chapter. New believers in Christ kept going to the, the uh, idol temples and have, having sex with prostitutes as part of their worship. True. Sick. Paul says this. Don't you realize that your bodies are the sanctuary, the temple of the Holy Spirit? Would I then take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? Anybody confused on what that means? No. Shall I take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute? May it never be. Eighteen words later, and if you know anything about how to interpret the Bible, context is everything. Eighteen words later, he says, Do not take the members of Christ and join them to a prostitute, but do join yourself in the Spirit to the Lord. You can't play with, what does join mean? What does join mean? It means the same thing. Your sexual intimacy is an image of the intimacy that Jesus made you this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking of Christ 
and his bride. <sighs> Dr. John Salhammer, one of the most brilliant men that ever lived now with the Lord, he says it's no mistake that the Bible begins and the Bible ends with a marriage celebration. The creations of the heavens and the earth, a marriage celebration. Revelation chapter 21, the creations of a new heaven and a new earth, a marriage celebration, because it is the clearest picture of the kind of relationship that God made you for. Image us, Father, Son, and Spirit. We are one. Adam and Eve, and put your names in there. Image us. It is an invitation to be one with him. Now, perhaps you know a man named Howard Hendricks. Anybody know who Howard Hendricks is? What a giant of a man, huh? Fifty years, as I understand it, faculty of Dallas Theological Seminary. Oh, goodness. It's hard to forget anything that guy says. He's so colorful. Here's what he says about sexual intimacy. He says, we should not be ashamed to talk about what God was not ashamed to create. And our purpose this morning in these moments is to assist you in your marriage or your future marriage. And by the way, where we're going to start going will make us perhaps a bit uncomfortable, but I'd rather be uncomfortable amongst God's people than getting ripped off by the enemy. So if, and those of you who are watching online, if you have small children or young children in the room, I think it would be very appropriate for them to not be in the room. We're not going to say anything inappropriate, but it is age-appropriate. Our purpose this morning is to assist you in your marriage or future marriage in restoring passion, joy, wonder in your sexual intimacy as God created you to experience. All the, the hundreds of, of nerve endings you have in your sexual organs put there by design, by the creator. Wow, what a creator. Wow, that's amazing. You know, Theda and I were conducting an intimacy session as part of a women's conference that was taking place at Good Shepherd, several hundred women, and uh, we, we gave the session with Family Life, having been on that team for 24 years, this particular session is about a 65-minute session where we get really uh, clear and redemptive. So while we're giving this session at this women's conference, I mentioned that I, when I do premarital, I do the last session is three and a half hours long where we talk about sexual intimacy. It sure seems like it wouldn't be complex. If you've been married more than a few weeks, you know. Yeah. And one of the things we feature in that three and a half hour session is particularly a focus on the female orgasm because that's a con that can be a very complex and disheartening. And, and, and where, where do you go to get help on that? You don't. You don't. Anyway, after we did this session, I talked about the three and a half hour session that I do for couples. This woman who had been married 25 years comes and he says, Alan, she says, Alan, would you do that three-and-a-half-hour session for my husband and myself? I go, sure. So they're in my office. Here we go. Here's the first thing she said. As the wife, she says, I feel under pressure, and he's lost his confidence. She says, wow, you just spoke for everybody. Well, sad. I mean, is that not the summary? She feels under pressure, and I, he's lost his confidence. So 
I, I, in the next couple of sections, here's what I'd like to do. Gentlemen, as men, as husbands, I, I want to speak to us on behalf of the women. And ladies, hopefully after these few moments, you go, yeah, you said it. You, you said it, Alan. You shared my heart. When I do premarital, I often do a 5,000-mile checkup. And 10,000, 15, 20, and 25,000-mile checkups. There was a couple in my office, and uh, they'd been married five years before I had um, conducted their premarital. We had gone through all the intimate issues. And after our hour kind of assessment, um, the husband said, Alan, um, we need your help. And we were safe to talk about this because we talked about this five years before. And he says, Alan, we're, we're touching each other sexually. We're having intercourse. But the wonder, the joy, the euphoria, it's not there. She's a lovely woman, and she's willing to have intimacy with me, but she's not there. And just spontaneously, I looked at him, and here's what I said. I said, you must touch her heart before you touch her body. And when you touch her body, touch it tenderly, softly, with dignity, elegance, romantically, slowly, giving her reason to feel safe and able to trust you. Your hearts have to connect before your bodies connect. I looked over at the wife and I'd forgotten this was going to happen. Tears streaming down. She said, if you would treat me like that, I think I could respond. I want to respond. You're my man. But the way you're making love to me right now, I can't. And gentlemen, when your wife doesn't respond the way you think she should, it's not that she won't. It's that she can't because you're not touching her in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many women in a moment of candor about their sexual relationship with their husband would, if it was safe to say, and it's generally not, I kind of feel pushed and pulled and poked and grabbed and gawked at, feeling like I'm on stage. I feel more used and loved. And in frustration, their husbands wonder, why don't you respond? Well, you don't have to look at your wife. Go in the restroom and look at the mirror. It's not that she won't, that she's made intricately in the image of God and must be treated with dignity at every moment, dressed or undressed, in order for her to follow her God-given path of sexual response. I was leading a singles ministry at Good Shepherd. There was a guy named Nat Pearson, wonderful young man, not married at the time, now married, children. And he, we were talking about purity. We were talking about treating women with dignity. And that was very important in our singles ministry. And Nat Pearson said this. He said, Alan, for me to touch a woman in a sexual way before she's my wife is essentially to say, I love me more than I love you. Could I take your clothes off so I could play with you for a while? Makes a woman want to throw up. And that's how many wives feel. 
A woman cannot let go with a man she does not trust, even if his label is husband. Women know spirit. And the body tells the story, does it not? Years ago, there's a young couple. They've had some awkward words. The husband, it comes to him by the Holy Spirit. He goes, man, I'm the guy that did the whole thing. He comes to his wife, and he says, sweetheart, I shouldn't have spoken to you in that manner. Could you find in your heart to forgive me? She says, yes. And he goes to hug her, because we've resolved the problem. And look, here's what happens. Intellectually, she meant it. She wasn't faking it. I forgive you, but her body told the story. We're not okay yet. At least I need to recover because that was rough or whatever it was. In your sexual intimacy, the woman's body will tell the story. I asked Theta, I says, honey, when did it change for you? When did intimacy change from something you were willing to be involved with because you knew how much it meant to me to when you delighted in it? She says, when I knew you loved me more than my body. When you loved the person of Theta. Much like that wife that day, she wanted to respond. And by the way, you know that couple where I said you must touch her heart before you touch her body? Well, he repented, sought her forgiveness, and began to touch her in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a couple weeks later, I was speaking, a good shepherd, he comes up, he goes, woo, good advice. Always do what the preacher tells you. Whoa. goes, thanks, Alan. There's a book that I'm going to recommend later in our, our time this morning, entitled Sheet Music by Kevin Lehman. Both the books I'll recommend later are Christian books written by Christian men. Um, and here's his advice to us as men. When it comes to touching your wife, and by the way, sexuality is for marriage only. Fire is great in the fireplace, but not on your skin. He says, husbands, when it comes to touching your wife, touch her three times slower than you would think you should and ten times more gentle. Guys, we would never do this, but if for somehow we could, what if after the sexually intimate experience that you've had with your wife, we interviewed her? Obviously, this is a ridiculous illustration, but it does have some substance. What if we interviewed her, and here's what she said. So what did you experience in there? Oh, she said, you know what? I felt so valued, so protected. I was nurtured. I, I was cherished. Oh, I, it, was, it was awesome. Now, I've talked about sexual intimacy and the power of the Spirit. Let me do this before we move to some thoughts, ladies, we'd like you as wives to consider. Could I, is it be okay? Everybody just close their eyes. I'm going to quote Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Men, what if you touched your wife sexually in this manner? Love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Go ahead and open your eyes. Guys, anytime you're not touching your wife like that, you're not touching her in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did a wedding for a friend of ours. Uh, she would get the national award for probably being the um, most librarian-looking librarian. Sorry if you're a librarian. She just didn't seem to have a lot of fireworks in that thing, in that body of hers. I did their wedding. Three months in, I said, so what surprised you? She says, I had no idea I had so much sexual passion. Her husband's there, and I go, I didn't either. And I prefer not to know anymore. Because every woman has a passionate desire for sexual fulfillment. You're going, count me out, that's not true. No, it is true, but someone or something for a season or for an event has damaged you and there's dams built up for just dignity and self-protection. And if we can find out what those are and with dignity and wholesomeness, wholesomeness and biblical insight, begin to remove those barriers then you will respond the way God made you. Men, ask your wife, sweetheart, what would it take? What would it take for you to feel safe? Safe in our sexual relationship. And then, gentlemen, as she takes the risk, risk and tells you, listen, don't send... A message that said, yeah, whatever, then don't ask. Don't ask unless you can ask with the humility that says, sweetheart, I treasure you. What would it take for you to feel safe? Ladies, I'd like to speak for a few moments to you on behalf of the guys in terms of what it is that they need and long for. Ladies, the reason why I share that portion first that we just did is because until he treats you like that, you can't respond. Until you know he loves you more than your body. There's a man named Robert Lewis, champion of a man. In college, he was an All-American linebacker for the Razorbacks when they were national championship contenders. He wrote a book called Rocking the Rolls, Speaking to Wives. Here's what he says. Few things affirm a man in his masculinity as does his wife's sexual responsiveness. Few things affirm a man in his masculinity as does his wife's sexual responsiveness. Spontaneous hugs, kisses, other demonstrations of affection, as well as intercourse, do more than make a man feel good. The actions meet a much deeper need. They reassure a man. They confirm a man in his masculinity. A major mistake that a wife should be sure to avoid is that assuming in sex all a man wants to do is please himself. A wife who carries that kind of unhealthy perspective can make a man feel cheap and dirty and ugly inside. Men are intensely physical creatures. God made us that the way. The manufacturer is the, is the one who gave women the normal level of testosterone for a woman is 70 units. That's the normal 
for a woman. The normal range for a man is 700 to 1,200 units of testosterone. Oh, if you had 10 to 17 times the amount of testosterone you have, it might come up on your mind a time or two, too. Who designed the man to have 10 to 17 times the amount of testosterone you do? God did. You know, when you walk by a house and it's got an unusual paint job, you're going, Woo! Man, that's interesting. Are you mocking the house? No. You're mocking whoever chose the colors. When you mock a woman, you're mocking the creator. When you mock a man, you're mocking the designer. Don't go there. Don't do that. Robert goes on to say, sexually interested. I wish I could burn those words into the soul of every wife. It's what makes a man feel like a man. A husband doesn't want a body to perform on. He wants a person who will respond to him in the physical terms that are so meaningful to him. Husbands aren't any more excited about half-to sex that a wife is offering than, than not getting a desire, a want-to response from her. Let me conclude these, this portion of what we're going to talk about in this way. Robert Lewis puts it very well. He says, ladies, something that your man probably will never tell you, but he's thinking it in one way or another. He's asking two questions about his masculinity. You know, you can give me all the plaques you want on the wall at the office. You can give me awards. You can put me up on a platform and give me a plaque. But if, if, if home isn't working, my life isn't working. So what if the office thinks I'm something if my wife doesn't experience safety and powerful response emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and physically. Here's the two questions that a man is asking all the time. The first thing in terms of your sexual intimacy and your response, he's saying, can I perform as a man? You know, the next verse in chapter 5 is husbands see that you, husbands love your wives and wives see that you respect your husbands. The most powerful thing Theta ever says to me is not I love you, I like it. The most powerful thing Theta ever says to me, she says, Alan, I am proud of you. Because men are made to be competent. Nobody says, hey, I got fired, me too. You incompetent? Yeah. It's not funny, is it? Because as men, you're made to be competent. So when your husband is seeking to touch you sexually and hoping that there will be a response, he said, can I perform as a man? Am I good at this? Because of how I make love to you, do you feel drawn to me? Am I a man? And the second question he's always asking is, do I bring my wife pleasure? The most important thing to a man in sexual intimacy is how his wife enjoys his lovemaking. Real sexual fulfillment does not come from the pleasure he receives, but from the pleasure he senses you received. Theodore and I were doing this session with another group, and this godly, godly wife, probably in her late 30s at that point. She is a rock. She says, Alan, can I add something? I go, you go right ahead. I'll listen to anything you have to say. She says, I was mentored by an older woman when I was a new bride, and she taught me to pray 
Father, cause me to thrill at the touch of my man. What goes on behind those doors is where life is really lived. Let's stop having the enemy rip us off. Men, if you'll lay down your life as Christ gave his life for the church and ask her the question, and in a minute we're going to get to the project that you see distributed on the, on the pews, that will absolutely unlock everything that needs to be unlocked at your house. And the reason why we gave you more than one copy is my recommendation is you, you experience this project together at least every couple of months, and the reason why you have an extra copy is keep making copies. We'll get there in a minute. Father, let me thrill at the touch of my man. And ladies, in the intimate moments, if there's things he is doing that he thinks are wonderful that you don't, guide him to what pleases you. That's all he wants to know. That's all he wants to know. Well, let me share a couple thoughts before we turn to the project. Just some wisdom and general coaching. Gentlemen, Can I encourage you to always treat your wife with respect? She's not an object to be ogled. She's a person to be treasured. That might, for instance, she's a human being who needs time alone when she's getting ready for the day unless she invites you to do so. She prefers not to be viewed, touched, pinched, poked, commented on. Let her be a human being. Because when we're friends, we're friends. And when we're lovers, we're lovers. You know, when Matt and Amy were up here three weeks ago, um, Amy gave a definition of friendship. Man, what a definition of friendship. Listen to this, this is what Amy said. A friend is someone who knows the song of your heart and can sing it back to you when you've forgotten the words. You know, if you met Theta, I call her the blonde bombshell. I tell you what, she is a pistol. She's a pistol outside the holster. You don't mess with a woman, trust me. She is. I said, you just lack confidence. That's what you lack. Well, I'm, I'm more insecure in Amy's definition of friendship. There are times when I'm saying, boy, I'm not sure I did that right and I did this. And Theta sometimes will even take my face in her hands. She goes, Alan, you're not that man. I know who you are. Let me remind you who you are. As it says in Proverbs chapter 1, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. But you know, the number one place that you turn up the heat in the bedroom has nothing to do with the bedroom. Here's another definition of friendship. A friend is someone who's delighted to see you, who does not have immediate plans for your improvement. A friend is someone who's just delighted to see you who doesn't have immediate plans for your improvement. As a husband and wife, do you remember when you used to just like each other? Do you remember that? You know, driving from the beach here is no big deal. You know, it's like five minutes away. You know, living where we live, it's a major commitment. But did you remember when you just, you know, it was 10 o'clock at night, said, let's go to the beach and get a cup of coffee. What? Because you just wanted to be together. What happened? What happened? What could turn up the heat in the bedroom is your friendship, just being delighted to be with one another. Pro primarily because we made our whole marriage a business meeting. 
Oh, we're talking about the kids. We're talking about the finances. We're talking about this. We're talking about that. Ah! Have a business meeting. We all have to talk about money and kids and arrangements and discouragement and hurt feelings, right? We all have to. But don't make your marriage a business meeting. You know, have a business meeting on Thursday night so that when you go out, you don't have to wonder, what's going to happen? I don't want to be alone with you because you whacked me last time we did this. A friend is someone who is delighted to see you who does not have immediate plans for your improvement. And another thing in terms of coaching, first of all, friendship. The number one way to turn up the heat outside the bedroom is friendship, being safe. Non-sexual touching. There just has to be beaucoup non-sexual touching. A man named Ed Wheat wrote a book years ago. It's a oh, marvelous book called Love Life for Every Married Couple. The guy was an obstetrician gynecologist, one of the trailblazers in the nation to help believers reclaim the gift of sexual in- intimacy. He said, everything I've taught you in this book, and it's a brilliant book. Actually, it was my coaching on how to love Peter well. He says, if you do everything I said in this book and you don't have a wealth of non-sexual touching, nothing I've taught you will work. As I said a moment ago, when we're friends, we're friends. Why don't couples just embrace and hold one another? The man feels her body and feels like, wow, I wonder what, what, what could take place now. No, when you're friends, you're friends. You hug, you embrace. Uh, our youngest daughter works quite a bit, and we take care of her two-year-old five days a week. Tita's home with Lincoln and five other kids from another one of our daughter's families. And Tita and I hug a lot. Non-sexual, tons of touching. And we'll just hold each other. And frankly, uh, you probably think I'm nuts for a lot of reasons. This will, I'll add to the list. That's my favorite moment in life. And two-year-old Lincoln that we take cover, he goes, hug, hug, hug. So we put him in the middle and we squeeze him. And he goes, ah! And we let go. He goes, again? Ah! He goes, again? And of course, that'll go on as long as we go. You must touch each other non-sexually. Planning. Oh, goodness gracious. Plan your times together. Oh, that takes all the romance out of it. If you plan and say, we're, we're choosing to be together in this way once a week, twice a week, whatever it is, this morning, that evening, whatever it is, if you plan it, it allows the wife who doesn't have 700 to 1,200 units of testosterone to begin to orient her mind and say, that's right, this evening or this afternoon or that morning is the morning that we're planning together. So she starts to think, that's right. And that's important for us. And it gives the man hope. I was in Tucson, Arizona doing a family life conference. And I was talking about planning, making this part of your life. And, and you said, well, it takes all the romance out of it. There was 900 people in the room. And so I said, look, what does it feel like, ladies? If your husband says, he gets home, he says, you're home from work, I'm home from work. I've taken care of the kids. Get dressed up, honey, I'm taking you out to dinner. He takes you to this lovely restaurant. You walk in, you're seated. There's a rose at the place setting with a card with your name on it. I said, how does that make you feel? And a woman in the front, yo, front row went, how would I know? <laughs> and she goes, sorry. 900 people are like, oops. Did it intensify the connection? Of course it did. 
get to your life. You know, the four laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The four laws of marriage. God loves you and everyone else has a wonderful plan for your life. Get to your life first. Would you pick up that uh, brochure or pamphlet, rather, that you have? We're going to spend the next four minutes before we conclude our time. Men and women, I don't expect you to remember what I said. I really don't. If you want to go back and watch it, great. When people walk out of a room, they only remember spirit and story. That's just the way God made us. But this tool will give you life for months and years to come. If you don't remember me, you'll probably have a better life. But this will help you. This project, let me set it up this way. Ed Weed, in his, in his book, Love Life, he says, physical desire with its expression is without a doubt the most complicated aspect of marriage. Every time you need to talk about sexual intimacy in your marriage, you feel like a failure, right? Gosh, why don't we have to talk about this? How often do you talk about your children, your jobs, your house, your finances, your future, your vacations, the church, friends, all the time. Do you feel like failures because you talk about it all the time? No. But do you feel like failures when we talk about intimacy? Yeah. Well, this will take that away. Here's what you do. There are two sections. There is an individual section. And men and women, I want you to catch this. This is a solution-focused tool. It's not like, well, how come you don't do this? Well, I don't like it when you do that. That's not what this is. This is solution-focused. You can be safe. For instance, on a scale of 1 to 10, the quality of our friendship. If you put a 6 and your spouse goes, well, you put a 6, here's the deal. When you put a 6 or you put a 4, it isn't, why did you put a 4? It's, what would get it closer to a 10? Solution. Not problem. The heart connection, our ability to resolve hurt feelings, it's a 6. What would get it closer to a 10? The amount of fun and laughter. Goodness gracious, John Gottman, one of the world's foremost experts on relationship, says the number one indicator of a successful marriage, secular insight, is the ability to have fun together. Instead of let's lock horns, that's what marriage is. No, it's not. Live in a meadow. Visit a business meeting, but don't live there. The amount of warm, affectionate, non-sexual touch, you can see down there, variety of physical intimacy with positive anticipation, gentleness and tenderness in intimacy, the ability to talk comfortably about it. Next page. Things I enjoy most about our lovemaking, things I'd like us to consider changing that would increase our enjoyment in leading up to sexual times together. I'd like for you, that's a solution. I feel discouraged when that's an honest answer. I feel most drawn to you sexually when. Now, look on the back. Gentlemen, you're not the head of your home for nothing. That means you lay down your life and you lead in a way that people want to follow. They delight and follow you. It says, before you share your thoughts, hopes, and concerns with each other from the individual section, we encourage the husband to lead in prayer. 
Ask the Father to give you open, tender hearts so you can experience a relaxed and healthy conversation, an important topic. Now, please, I beg you, read this carefully. And gentlemen, let's do this. Let's do this. What goes on behind closed doors is what goes on. Please, and I encourage you probably every 60 to 90 days to do this project again, because today's solution will not be a solution six weeks from now. We're dynamic human beings. Nothing static. Let me close my comments in this manner. Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You have an enemy. He hates marriage. It just makes him boil because it is the image of God. It's the image of God. If we can break the mirror that's supposed to reflect, that's your God. No, thank you. Back to Joe Aldridge, the number one evangelistic tool in America today is a successful marriage because it's a living miracle. You have an enemy. It's not the person sitting next to you. You have an enemy, and he sought to divide you and discourage you and to think, Jesus, he can resurrect other things, but not this place. There's nothing in this room that a miracle wouldn't cure. Said of Jesus, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They didn't think he could do it. Just be naive enough to know that Jesus literally resurrected from the dead, and the power that resurrected him from the dead desires your marriage to be awesome, or at least fulfilling. Mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and sexually. Let's pray. Father, defeat the enemy at Harvest Community Church. Love this place. Love Bruce and Tammy. Love Matt and Amy. Love the Armand Trouts. Those are the people I know. Man, I love this place. I love these people. Defeat the enemy at this church and allow marriages behind closed doors to, to, to use this tool to say, what, what would help make this whole relationship better? Give me, what would get us closer to attend? Oh, Father, get us to talk about what you weren't ashamed to create, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.